I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. What explains the unswerving loyalty of President Trump's base? It's been a question that has bedeviled inside the Beltway types for some time, prompting endless talk about the power of Fox News, the insidious distortions of social media, and the benighted worldview of a huge chunk of the American electorate. But John Harris, one of the founding editors of Politico, wanted to dig deeper. He asked Trump supporters, in the wake of the president's impeachment, to email him with a simple instruction, explain yourself. Help me, Harris was saying, a certified Washington insider himself, better understand where you are coming from and how you might react if similar allegations of misconduct had been leveled against Hillary Clinton. What he got back was far more illuminating than anything he expected. Several hundred responses, many of them both candid and thoughtful, best summed up by one reader who, after decrying Trump's personal behavior while lauding his accomplishments, wrote, quote, he is our OJ. We'll ask Harris to explain himself, and we'll ask two of Bernie Sanders' most vocal supporters, the hosts of the Chapo Trap House podcast, to explain themselves on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, you know, just a few days ago, we all thought we were on the precipice of war with Iran. The Iranians were vowing revenge in the wake of the uh, assassination of General Soleimani, ordered by President Trump. Everybody was expecting a pretty swift and um, potentially lethal response from the Iranians. And then they fire off these missiles that don't hurt anybody at a U.S. airbase, not Americans nor Iraqis. And it seems as though we dodged a bullet. Or dodged many missiles, I guess (laughs) you could say. Precise. Look, um, yeah, I I think in in hindsight, the likelihood of a really hot war with large amounts of troops on both sides and invasions and tanks, I mean, I think that was not likely. It was scary. It looked like that's where we were headed. But it was not in either side's interest to pursue that kind of clash. I do think that it's going to be ugly for a long time. I think all the conditions and dynamics are still there for a long and bloody proxy war, asymmetrical warfare. I think there's going to be a lot more bloodshed um, going forward. The Iranians want America out of the region. I think they feel like they have momentum. The Iraqis, after all, they voted in their parliament to kick us out. Now, that was just a draft legislation, and that may not happen now, but I think that is where things are well, yeah. headed. And but isn't that the way they were ever since Trump pulled out of the, uh, uh, the nuclear deal? The Iranians have stepped up their attacks on U.S. interests in, in Iraq and uh, elsewhere in the region. They've stepped up their support for Hezbollah, for the Islamic Jihad in Gaza, for the Houthi rebels in Yemen. So I'm not yes. quite sure how this fundamentally changes the dynamic of where we were. Look, I first heard of Qasem Soleimani in 2000 when I was a foreign correspondent based in Jerusalem and I was covering the withdrawal of Israeli forces from southern Lebanon, which they'd occupied for a a couple of decades. Soleimani was running that Hezbollah insurgency against the Israelis. I remember in the last weeks 
of the Israeli occupation, visiting Israeli soldiers in their bunker. I'm still haunted by the frightened faces of those soldiers who were fearing the next suicide bomber, the next roadside bomb, uh, the next rocket that would hit their bunker. It is a slow bleed strategy and it is highly effective and they don't need Soleimani to run it. The Iranians have been doing this with their proxies for generations now. So they've got time on their side and we don't. And I think either there'll be a swift withdrawal or there'll be a long bloody withdrawal. I don't think it ends well for the United States under either scenario. Yeah, but look, I, I'll just make one final point on this is uh, before we give the Iranians too much credit for their military prowess, at first, when we learned there were no casualties on that airbase missile attack, we thought, a lot of people thought that the Iranians may have deliberately steered their missiles away from where U.S. troops and Iraqi troops, as it turned out, were stationed at the airbase. But now that we learned uh, today, as we speak, that it was a uh, Iranian missile that shot down an airplane taking off from their own airport, it makes you wonder. Uh, if, um, you know, maybe they are as screwed up as our military sometimes <laughs> yeah, yeah. is, certainly in uh, aiming after potential threats. Um, but look, we, uh, we should be talking also about what may be, you know, finally on the eve of an impeachment trial. We don't know. Pelosi was is still withholding those articles as we speak, but McConnell has just told his caucus he expects the trial to begin next week. You know, I, I just don't know how much Pelosi has gained by withholding them. Uh, she certainly put the focus on whether there's going to be a vote for witnesses or not. But even if you take McConnell's own rules, you know, from the or proposed rules based on the Clinton impeachment, it seems to me once the opening arguments are done, there will be motions to call witnesses and those uh, Republican senators who are facing reelection will have to vote anyway. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The point, I think, of Pelosi's strategy here was to put more pressure on those senators. If they had gone straight to a trial, there would have been less time. Now, there's been a public debate about this question of whether there should be witnesses. And the theory was that that was going to put more uh, pressure on the Susan Collinses and the Lisa Murkowskis and the Cory Gardners of the world. You know, maybe that, that she waited too long. And at this point, like everything else in our politics, everything moves so quickly, it's already been baked in, it's already been discounted, and maybe it won't have a, a significant impact on, on those senators. Uh, I, this is hard to predict. Um, it's going to depend very much on the dynamics in the individual states and races and, and uh, you know, what those individual senators are facing. And we just don't know. One thing that did happen during this uh, interregnum is uh, John Bolton, the former national security advisor, who widely believed by Democrats anyway to be a, a critical witness, uh, potentially one that would be very harmful to President Trump, came forward, put on his website that he now would respond to a uh, subpoena in the Senate trial. And so we'll have to see what, right. what that ends up well, meaning. Well, I, I have to say, count me skeptical on that front that Bolton is really going to stick it to Trump. He's kind of hinted at that. But, you know, this is a guy a conservative Republican ideologue for decades, loyal to his party and his vision of the world. And I should point out that on the, you know, he made the announcement, or he posted the announcement of his willingness to testify on the website of his super PAC, Bolton PAC. And it's right above a previous release announcing that the Bolton super PAC had endorsed for re-election and presumably will be funding the campaign, will be funding the campaigns, actually making contributions to the campaigns 
of Tom Cotton of Arkansas, Corey Gardner of Colorado, Tom Tillis of North Carolina, Adam Zinger in the House, uh, Kinzinger in the House, and Lee Zeldin. Most of those pretty solid Trump supporters. So the idea that Bolton is going to be the guy who brings Trump down. No, uh, no, I, no. I don't, oh, yeah. he I, is I don't not, see no. that. He is not the difference between acquittal and removal from office. So what are the Democrats but, getting their hopes well, up here's about? What, you know, he is going to have to, if he testifies, he is going to be testifying presumably publicly or at least in a videotaped deposition to all of the things that we heard he said and did in those House hearings, which is saying that he didn't want to be any part of this drug deal right. uh, that was being cooked up on Ukraine. But he uh, said by he Giuliani was, and Sondland, right. not by the president. Right. That's the key. That's here. the key. That right. Is, right. That is right. the key. And, 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 and what if the, he doesn't go, if, he, yeah. if his testimony doesn't go beyond what we already know, look, it, it will not be decisive. Still, it's a real person. It's it's the it's right. the closest advisor to the president um, in this whole process, testifying publicly. If I'm the Democrats, I'm going to take that. Of course, right? Of course. So it, oh, of course, it, you know, it may be mildly damaged at this point. Yes, it is a constitutional process, but Democrats are clearly looking at this, you know, almost a third of the way into a presidential election year as a way to hurt Trump. This may hurt Trump a little more. We will be discussing that and related matters with our first guest, our old colleague, John Harris. So let's get on with it. We are now joined by our old Washington Post colleague, later founding editor of Politico, John Harris. John, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you so much. So fascinating piece you had in Politico about the mindset mentality of Trump supporters, something we've all speculated about for quite some time. Tell us the genesis of this piece and what you found. Well, Michael, I've got a perspective like you in that the Clinton impeachment isn't distant history. It's uh, one, one I remember pretty well, and we both right. covered it. Yes, and so uh, when you start talking about impeachment, it's natural, I think, for me to have these comparisons between what Republicans thought then and what they think now. And I have a hard time understanding how somebody could be outraged by Bill Clinton's conduct, feel that it warrants constitutional remedy, a removal from office, and at the same time be totally cool with what Trump did and said that impeachment's outrageous. I don't have somebody uh, problem with somebody saying both are outrageous, need to go. I don't really have a problem with somebody saying both are really not that big a deal. Let's have some perspective and step back. They don't. The two things don't seem incompatible to me. But in the spirit that I think we as journalists should try to have, curiosity before judgment, I'll ask. And so before the holidays, I did a column saying, look, if you, tell me what you think, Trump defenders, and tell me how you would think what you would think if the facts were exactly the same in the Ukraine matter, except Hillary Clinton was uh, was president. I want to hear from you. And I heard from several hundred people and a bunch of the responses were yeah. pretty good. Now, my first sort of reaction to that is, so you're the editor of Politico. We all read it inside the beltway here, but you've got several hundred Trump supporter readers out there. Well, I mean, these are uh, certain I mean, I'm sure we have many more than that. <laughs> right. than several, yeah. hundred, several hundred uh, agreed <laughs> right. to write me. And most uh, did it in uh, good faith, which was, for me, a good feeling because I was asking in a spirit of good faith. And I didn't know how many people would, uh, would just respond with invective and, and insults right. and profanity and all the rest. A few, but not most. And uh, they gave me their views. And so I, was, uh, I found it interesting into the mindset of how people justify their behavior. We all write. And I write sometimes about the tribalism of politics, which is fine for describing groups. Uh, it doesn't really do much to illuminate how specific individuals get from point A to point B. Uh, I've never heard anybody say, well, I just, uh, uh, you know, tribalism, I just do whatever my tribe seems to be doing. And I, right. I surrender independent judgment and, and just do that. Nobody justifies his or her own views that way. And in fairness, I never hear, I usually hear people invoke tribalism to describe the behavior of other people, not the behavior of themselves. Uh, that was interesting in their responses, which is, you guys, journalists, sort of Washington uh, uh, professional class, you guys are a tribe too, right? 
Well, so John, there, there was one of the readers made an analogy to a kind of spectacle and a criminal justice case that we are all very familiar with and covered <laughs> back in the day that kind of crystallized this mindset in a lot of ways. Uh, and that was OJ. Tell us about that reader. And well, what you thought about it was that. A, a long uh, email. And uh, he uh, started out that he thinks uh, Trump is uh, narcissistic. Uh, uh, I can't remember all the adjectives he used. He said he's basically a horrible person. Wait a minute, I, I wanted to hear from Trump defenders. Hang on, he'll get there. What this reader said is, one, he thinks uh, Trump is fundamentally a strong person and has done well with the economy. And But the main thing, and this is where OJ came in, is uh, the obsession that the people pursuing Trump uh, are not on the level. And so just as a lot of people could uh, end up supporting uh, uh, O.J. Simpson's acquittal, even though they thought he was guilty, because the system was rigged. The police were racist. That's what this person says. Look, we can support Trump with all his flaws, his character flaws, and some of the flaws in his record, because this game, your game, the Washington uh, game, is not on the level. Yeah. So this guy's line was, he is our OJ, yeah. which really uh, um, not a bad headline. Yeah, no, it's a great headline. <laughs> I think we'll make it the name, the title for this podcast. But I gotta say, without fully going there, I did along the way over the last year draw some analogies. You remember Mark Furman. Of course, he was the racist cop who was on the scene investigating the uh, the OJ, the murder of OJ's wife and friend. And later turned out he was a racist cop who had a history of uh, prejudice against African-Americans. No evidence that he tampered with with the evidence, but it was enough to raise doubts for you know, the, the members of the jury that wanted to believe OJ's version of events. And I thought, you know, Peter Strzok is the Mark Furman of the investigations into Donald Trump, a guy who was the top FBI agent investigating Trump and Russia, crossfire hurricane, and had these this clear bias against the president. No evidence that he tampered with evidence or did anything improper in his official duties, but the fact that he came from a place of extreme prejudice against Donald Trump, which a lot of people would think would be for good reason, but no question what he was writing, he was the Mark Furman of the uh, Russia investigation. Yeah, I guess so. Um, although, Mueller identified that early and fired the guy. Um, yeah, uh, or made sure that he was not connected. Right? No, no, no. He did. He did. He, he booted um, him off the case, but it began. Crossfire Hurricane began pre-Mueller, as you remember. The common thread, I think, Michael, between all these, uh, back to O.J. Simpson, uh, the Bill Clinton impeachment that we mm -hmm. covered, and now this Trump impeachment, it really comes down uh, at the end, not to the facts of the the case, it comes down to the one question, which side are you on? That was Clinton's genius. Is there an old uh, lefty folk song? <laughs> which side are you on? Is that Woody Guthrie? Come on, my music yeah, producer, are you going to help us here, <laughs> yeah. Mark? <laughs> so you, in this piece, you wrote, uh, you write with great insight on, on the perception of Trump supporters out there. This must have gotten you also to think a little bit about, about the reality of it. And I guess that's what I want to ask you, which is the perception is clearly that the professional class, as you put it, the insiders, the elites have stacked the decks against us. And I guess uh, the question is, how do you actually sort of analyze that premise? Do you see it that way? Or is there uh, something else going on here? that in our culture, I mean, the tribalism, for example, all of the other kind of structural issues in our politics that have driven people apart and driven people to want to support Donald Trump. So what, I mean, what is the reality here behind these perceptions in your view? Well, I don't accept the reality is, of course, I wouldn't. And this is probably my own tribalism at work, somebody would say, but the, I don't accept the idea that sort of non-ideological media like Politico are sort of hopelessly biased or, or, or carrying an agenda. That's not the tradition uh, that Michael and I grew up in uh, at the Washington Post or, or, or you did earlier in your career. Daniel, so I, I do just reject that. I do think it's certainly true 
that a lot of Democrats were on the record, uh, even before, uh, you know, from the very beginning of the administration, wanting to impeach Trump. And many Trump supporters view it through that prism. Like, look, if it wasn't this, it'd be something else. You want to uh, evict him from office. It's my, I guess my great concern. It's a concern about um, our business and the media, and it's a concern more broadly about the, uh, the political culture is that we've lost some of our mechanisms of accountability. Because if any factual matter can uh, be looked at, not at face value, but only through the prism of whether it's a weapon or a shield in some kind of ideological war, if every uh, institution is affected by uh, this mentality of which side are you on, it really weakens the ability of a culture, a political culture, to impose accountability. Uh, It's really hard to see. Uh, as people have made the point many times, so it's really hard to see a repeat of 1974 uh, with Nixon when his time was up when Republicans uh, came to him and said, Mr. President, we are not with you. If it had only been which side are you on and, uh, and Democrats, he might well have survived. So, so then what, so is the, the, what are our levers? What are our muscles of right. accountability? They've got seems to be pretty weak. Right. So then the, 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 the follow-up column maybe should be what do you do about it? What is the prescriptive element here? I don't uh, um, really Stumped have him. an answer to that, except <laughs> that I think um, what's uh, going to change this is one side or the other in our politics is going to win decisively in a way that we haven't in uh, for 20 years or maybe arguably 40 years. Reagan had a big, big victory and was able from that point on to sort of impose certain assumptions in the political debate. But starting with kind of Gingrich and Clinton, uh, it's been essentially a jump ball in battle for power. And I, I think until the pendulum decisively shifts, you're going to have uh, investigations uh, as a form of partisan combat. You're going to have a mentality that nobody believes what the other side is uh, is saying and that everything is geared to the next election, the next battle. Would you expect to see a, a kind of Trump-like figure emerge on the left as well. In other words, this is not just a phenomenon of of the right in our politics. It's not, but I do think uh, Democrats is historically the party that uh, believes in government and, and uh, has a, a lot of affirmative uses for government uh, is not likely to move to somebody who's so contemptuous of right, institutions because, and government. Because um, you've got it's a, a more Sa- natural fit. Because right. uh, you've got a Bernie Sanders and to, and to some extent an Elizabeth Warren who they're tapping into a lot of the same anger yeah, and People who are contemptuous of the status quo. Uh, but uh, I don't want to blow things up, and yet yeah. they're staying within the rules. They're not finding alternative realities, alternative yeah. facts. They're not contemptuous of yeah. institutions yeah. Uh, uh, right. of government or uh, institutions more broadly, whether it's the media. Yeah. Uh, whereas a lot of conservatives, uh, that's the essence of Trump. They are contemptuous. They are in a nihilistic frame of mind. They do want to blow it up. A couple of great lines uh, in the piece that really leapt out at me. One, you know, right towards the top with talking about the responses you got with sincerity, candor, and even a measure of wistful idealism. People shared their views of a political and media culture they believe is cynical at its core. If almost nothing is on the level, almost anything goes. Yeah, I think that... uh that describes the world I see. I don't know if it yeah, describes, no, no. Uh, Michael, the world you encounter. Uh, it, is, uh, it, is, it is reality right now. And I wonder, just like following the impeachment drama as it plays out, and I want to get to um, your own reflections uh, 20 years later on Clinton impeachment versus this one. But, you know, we heard so much from the Democrats uh, in November and December about the urgency of impeachment, about how Trump was a clear and present danger uh, to the republic and this needed to be done right away. And then we get to the articles passing the House on a purely partisan basis. And as we sit here at this moment, now this may change very quickly, but as we sit here three weeks later, after the articles passed, Pelosi has yet to deliver them to the Senate and seems to be engaged in this game of political gamesmanship with Mitch McConnell. And I just wonder if you think that, you know, will feed the view of this whole thing as being cynical to its core. 
I mean, for people who are predisposed to believe that, it will. I don't personally think it's that fair. When people described it as urgent, they didn't mean an urgent in the, the sense of a ticking bomb, like in a James Bond movie, and the thing will be dis- diffused mm-hmm. with seven seconds to go or something right. like that. I think they meant uh, urgent in the sense that if uh, an institution allows the another institution of government to just be contemptuous of uh, yeah. uh, uh, of its demands or of its constitutional responsibilities, you fundamentally weaken the institutions in a long-term way and you sever that, uh, that kind of muscle of accountability. Uh, and so in that sense, uh, I think this would be what Pelosi would say. Like if I... If we acquiesce to this, if we yield to this defiance, how do we ever reverse that precedent? Right, but, how having, we ever but having, done it, having done it, why not pull the trigger and take it to the next level? Or what is the advantage of it sitting there? Clearly, she's not going to get Mitch McConnell to cave on the rules. No, and, but do they think that they can get a handful of uh, Republicans squirming uh, to... Uh, they do, would you, only do, you, need to do you think they're squirming? I think the optics of this are uh, actually not uh, helping the vulnerable, uh, not putting pressure on vulnerable Republicans like Susan Collins. Do you think uh, it is or is not? Is not, yeah. Is not. uh, Yeah, you'd think that uh, I don't exactly see how this is accruing uh, to Democrats' advantage, but I don't think it's necessarily hypocritical. uh, Democrats, and I think in particular Speaker Pelosi, were trying to uh, to assert institutional responsibility. And they saw that effort being sort of thwarted or ignored by the other uh, chamber yeah, institutions. I think this is like, so I don't think it's well, I don't think it's hypocritical of her to try. I, but I, let me let me let me actually go back to the Clinton impeachment because I think there's another point uh, that I think indicates why some of those things that could have fed some of the cynicism that exists right now into the point of your column, which is I went back and I looked and Schumer. Uh, back then, when Clinton was uh, going to be on trial, he voted for an immediate dismissal. Yeah. He voted against bringing uh, witnesses to the trial. And then you look at, like, Lindsey Graham. You know, he he was uh, for witnesses. He was a house everybody manager. And he is, is now. Right? And he is now. Everybody and he has is, right? flip-flopped on their positions from 20 years ago. And that's ago. exactly what McConnell I mean, said. Just Jerry recently, Nadler. when McConnell was asked about this, right. he said, yeah, go back and look. You know, he basically said, we're... It is tribal. Go back and look at our records. Everybody has done this. But isn't that why, to some extent, the voters who are uh, writing to you feel the way they do? Well, those voters are right. Uh, right, and that's what I'm saying. It is a political process. It's not a. Uh, but if nothing not is on, what was the line? Law. If nothing is on the level. Nothing's on the level. Anything goes. Anything goes. Sure. Uh, well, actually, you wrote almost. Almost. Anything. You know what's funny? So, I, did, uh, uh, I didn't uh, want to be unfair to the people I was quoting, because I. Uh, yeah. so I did throw that almost <laughs> in there. Uh, and I think they would see that almost nothing is on the level. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, there's still a few things. Yeah. But they're precious few, I think, uh, uh, that are on the level. They're right. It's infused with politics, and it's easy to well, find hypocrisy. And I could uh, have written a whole article just flipping it, like from the Democratic perspective and gone collected all those examples with Schumer, I thought this is more relevant because it's not a Democrat who's president of the United States. It's a Republican. Right. right. I, by the way, listen, on Pelosi's posturing, I think it's like a lot of things in Washington. There is a high-minded explanation for it and justification for what she's doing. But there's also clearly a political yeah, <laughs> dimension and I don't see that. to it. I don't and see that part working. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I th- I, th- I think it's 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 much more narrow than that. Um, you got State of the Union coming up first week in February. Uh, she doesn't want the trial to have taken place and him to go give his State of the Union, claiming vindication and being you know getting uh, thunderous applause from all the Republicans so she wants to slow in the walk chamber, it and so that it's after the State of the Union. Yeah, so it hangs. She over, wants President Trump to be delivering yeah. the State of the Union while the while the trial is going on. Uh-huh. And, you know, if she if she holds off for, you know, a little while longer, you know, she may get that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it colors his uh, the uh, be- a lot of beginning. factors going on. Right. There's a <laughs> yeah. lot of uh, Senate uh, Democrats who would rather be in Iowa right. and New Hampshire. Now, I should the- say we're taping this on Thursday afternoon. McConnell said today for the Senate Republican he, he, caucus, it, he expects the trial next week, which means he expects Pelosi to deliver on Friday. We will see. And our listeners will know by the time they're presumably listening to this. Um, but we didn't think that she would be able to hold out 
about this long. No, so. we didn't. And I listening to her today at our news conference, uh, she seemed pretty cagey. <laughs> she said, you know, probably soon, but <laughs> when I'm ready is the way she put it. Clinton impeachment, you covered it. You wrote a great book about uh, the Clinton presidency. And then and now the way Clinton handled impeachment versus the way Trump is handling it. Similarities, differences. Well, I'm much more struck by the differences. Bill Clinton decided that he would survive this if he could convince uh, people that he was more worried about their problems, as he liked to say, than he was about his. And uh, so there was this phrase uh, I think I helped inflict on uh, people at the time, compartmentalization. Mm-hmm. And uh, Did you come up with it first? I know. I, mean, I certainly <laughs> adopted came it. into a <laughs> yeah. lot of my copy. I, yeah. I, I think it must have been somebody over at the White House. And we kind of uh, bought it at the time because it was true. You know, Clinton would appear, give speeches, impeach wouldn't, impeachment would never come up. I think it was really only later after the presidency, and I went back to it and, and wrote a book. Uh, it was really BS. It was true in terms of the public image presented. But inside the White but House. Inside the White House, he was consumed. Yeah. Of course. He was consumed. Some purple rages, uh, they call them, right? Uh, he paid such a high price. He basically lost a year of his presidency, and he lost much more than that because he had a project uh, that he saw his second term as, as being uh, likely to carry out, which he was going to he was going to move the center of the country in the same way that Ronald Reagan did. He saw himself as somebody who uh, was a great unifier and could. Um, basically create a new Democratic Party from the center that would last uh, for a generation after that. That was his ambition. That was completely demolished by uh, the Lewinsky scandal and the impeachment, and um, uh, where he had no choice but to just do everything he could to keep uh, the sort of disparate elements of the Democratic uh, coalition behind him. And uh, he lost his, uh, basically lost his second term, and he lost... Uh, what would have, could have been the possibility of really creating something big, uh, there would be a Clintonism just like Reaganism. But instead, there was allegations of a vast right-wing conspiracy, right? I mean, um, the, 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 yeah, the right. political, the, knife fight, the imperatives of the political, right. what you need to do to win the knife fight. Yeah, and look, so much of what Trump has done publicly on Twitter time and again to excess was being done regularly by the Clinton White House. He's just more transparent. With, well, with, of course, Trump, and, with surrogates. But I of, mean, course, of course, Trump the, never had those aspirations because the, Trump's entire what? political strategy is is the base. He doesn't want to build something things, bigger. Uh, Daniel, uh, that Trump has done that Clinton would actually, in certain some moods, love to have done. Clinton despised FBI Director Louis Free. Oh, oh, right. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. Like, well, and that, that, that actually, that actually right. brings us back a little bit to your piece, because some of the appeal that Trump seems to have for his supporters is that he's not a hypocrite. He says what he believes, you know, he's just out there with, uh, there's no artifice. There's no, right. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, dissembling. Right. He may be corrupt. He may be corrupt. He may be a liar, but he's openly doing it. Yeah. Yeah. But there's an essential sort of truth in that he doesn't uh, project kind of false piety. The smarminess of politicians. Something's on uh, Trump's mind, you know, it's going to be on his lips or it's going to be on his fingers pretty much in real time. Right, Um, right. But, uh, uh, you know, just going through the similarities, the attacks, you know, the contempt for the FBI and the FBI director, the going after Ken Starr. He didn't do it on Twitter every day, but his surrogate certainly did investigate the investigators, filing complaints, leak investigations, on and on it went, and going after the media, which I think I could probably speak a little. (laughs) to from his surrogates so you know there were uh, there are a lot more similarities than um a lot of people would the differences are external the similarities are internal yes and uh i would say they even probably uh from what i've read uh very similar to nixon when presidents are in the bunker they are there's a lot of uh, common traits they feel aggrieved they feel paranoid uh, they feel unappreciated, and they feel ready to do whatever they need to right. do to right. survive. Another great line, uh, which I circled in reading the piece, of the nearly 63 million people who cast votes for Trump last time, it is hard to believe there are any who did so because they thought he was deferential to precedent, a protector of established norms, a stickler for playing by the rules. <laughs> um, I haven't found any yet. <laughs> yeah. uh, but that really goes to the point. People uh, uh, saw yeah. Trump for who he is, and I think a lot of... Uh, 
Trump supporters. It's not a, I back him, even though he does all these things. They back him precisely because right. he shares their contempt. Well, what I loved was that you had a reader who did not vote for Trump the last time, but now is going to vote for Trump. That uh, can, will confound, why, why the, confound the elites. Uh, just to be oh, clear, I just, I mean, you know, <laughs> just to explain yourself. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, three years into the Trump presidency, yeah. you know, I, I get the logic. The economy right. is doing well. He's fighting for the little guy. I mean, I don't know much about this particular All right, we're going to start losing half our audience if you go much further. All right, look, uh, uh, John, as we wrap up here, put on your crystal ball. How's this going to play out? Impeachment and then going into the um, election? Well, I don't have uh, any reason to, uh, to challenge the conventionalism on impeachment, that it'll go to a, uh, an acquittal. And the question is just whether it's a really rapid dismissing the charges or, or whether there's more uh, extensive uh, trial about it. And then I think the... Uh, and Nancy Pelosi knew this. This is why she was uh, uh, didn't really want the impeachment in the first place. This was going to be fundamentally decided by the public in, in November. And I thought the article was interesting because it kind of helps to know. Uh, I mean, people, voters are interesting, and they have uh, uh, more sophisticated, the most yeah. engaged uh, voters right. have more sophisticated rationale for what they think than maybe we sometimes give them credit for. Right. It, it, let me quit, very quickly on the Democratic field. Is there anybody? Any of the Democrats who are still running for president who you think can speak effectively to the concerns of these kinds of uh, voters who wrote to you? I think not before the election. There, I could imagine some being a president, if they were elected president, being able to uh, sort of detox uh, the environment. Who would um, that be? Uh, <laughs> I think... Uh, I think a bunch of them could. Uh, uh, I think uh, even people who we don't think of as natural uh, uh, unifiers, uh, we think of them as dividers like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth yeah. Warren, they, they could have that. Uh, I think they could convince people that uh, they're on the level, that they're not full of, uh, full of BS, uh, and that there's something genuine. We, well, that's a hopeful note. Yeah. <laughs> well, we shall see. People um, don't want to live this way. That's what yeah. I would say. That was what struck me from, yeah. I've had several hundred emails. People don't like the way we're living as a country. Yeah. And yet they don't see any escape to it. The piece is, he is our OJ. It is by John Harris and worth everybody reading. John, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. So we are now joined by Virgil, Texas, and Matt Chrisman of Chapo Trap House. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Thanks for having us. us. So there's so many things uh, I want to ask you, but can you please explain that name? Well, it began because the show started as an informal discussion that me, my friend uh, Will Meneker, and Felix Biederman, all of whom met online, had via Google Hangouts just ripping YouTube links off of for audio, not even knowing how to edit them. Mm -hmm. And so the first episode we did was really just a trial. And at the end of it, he jokingly said, we should call it that, because making it sound like a rap mixtape, you know, uh, using hip hop lingo and whatever. Uh, and we all thought that was funny. <laughs> and then it got really popular almost immediately. And we were essentially stuck with it. But we're all kind of glad, as much as it is kind of nonsensical and silly, we're really glad we didn't think too hard about it because then it would be something like the politics boys with a Z or something, something right. very even but did more you, embarrassing. Do you understand his explanation? Not, I, not, I, not I, really. Okay, look, <laughs> Chapo, is that a reference to El Chapo? Uh, yeah. It, Okay. Oh, okay. And how does that fit in with your What's overall? What's a trap house? <laughs> trap house is where you get drugs. I'm I'm told. Uh, That's I mean obviously it's sort okay. of the ironic. So is this a drug thing? Of, well, the idea. Yeah, it's like a, it's like. Are the you name promoting of a, the drug culture? Is that the well, point of Chapo Drop House? We're fine with drugs in all their forms, but right. just a, a, okay. The contrast Isikoff wanted to start of, with a point of consensus, right? <laughs> the contrast between a bunch of now now dorks now. talking about this politics. feels very Frost Nixon right now. Just about our. This is the hardest anyone's got. <laughs> but no, it's like oh, a, we're just an ironic, started, an ironic <laughs> counterpoint between you know a, a a name that sounds like a hip hop mixtape or something, and then a bunch of squeaky voice nerds talking about politics. Okay, so look, we're talking here in the second week of January in the aftermath of the news that. 
President Trump has uh, taken out Qasem Soleimani, uh, the head of the Revolutionary Guard Quds Force. Are you guys uh, celebrating the death of this enemy of America? I, I'm not. Virgil? I'm not either. I've been uh, disassociating since the news, and I'm just just now kind of putting myself back together. Uh, no, it's yeah. It seems like a disaster and horrible in every way. Very bad, folks. We don't like to see it. Yeah, because let, let, let I want to tease out your thinking here a little bit. Well, I mean, we shouldn't be there. I think is our like easy, easy sort of slug answer is that is that the united states presence in the middle east is, is this attempt to be you know the arbiter of whatever is actually only at every point makes things worse makes things more fraught and then we to explain the chaos we create decide to blame people actually in the region like iran for destabilization that is all of it comes directly from u.s intervention and so the idea that we're going to make anything safer by deepening uh, military actions in the Middle East and doing something as radically destabilizing as attack the top military officer and diplomat for you, one of the biggest countries yeah. in the region is is yeah. horrifying. Do you think that we, that the United States is the main destabilizing presence in the Middle East? I mean, obviously the Iraq War, a lot of people think had that effect. And how would you assess Iran as a destabilizing force? I mean, they're responding. That's the thing that I can't get over is the idea the every uh, opportunity for, that Iran has taken to infiltrate themselves into countries from Iraq to Syria. Uh, none of these are, these are all vacuums created by American military action and, and occupation and the chaos unleashed by that. And they actually live there. And it seems insane to me to be condemning a country for trying to stabilize the their neighbors on their own terms, because who wouldn't do that mm -hmm. uh, when we are insisting on dictating the terms in the Middle East from 5,000 miles away. So just one follow-up question on that. So do you think that Iran has the right to pursue a nuclear uh, weapon? I think, honestly, they have an, a moral responsibility to pursue and acquire a nuclear weapon because at this point it should be pretty clear that the only guarantee against them, U.S. military aggression is if you have a nuke. So they should get one as soon as they can. Well, I don't think that's a position that you're – candidate for president bernie sanders actually endorses no i so what no, are you uh, virgil you're you're what? curiously silent through all this discussion i you was told this would be easy yeah. <laughs> uh no yeah. matt matt that was you were misinformed matt yeah. was a perfectly right. cromulent answer from matt but let yeah. me also answer it in this way and say Assessing what is an extrajudicial assassination, assessing whether this is a good or bad thing, I think you have to look at the person who conducted it and is, well, one of the more horrifying things I've seen in the past few days was the president's explicit threat to bomb 52 military targets, cultural centers, places within the borders of Iran. A threatening and, and uh, I would say an apocalyptic war crime. And I think that as that policy, which includes things like extrajudicial assassination, is a deep moral stain on all of us as Americans. And well, you would you would include Obama's drone war as well as part of that. Yes. I mean, that's all that's, you consider all of those extrajudicial. Yes. I mean, that yeah. is that is central right. to you know, what what I would call the show's critique. That is to, to what, you know, we are calling the left critique to the, the right. this right. this this amorphous group that you know sits to the left of the Democratic Party and is largely a reaction to the Obama administration when the Obama administration did not pan out how a lot of activists thought they would in two thousand. Thought it Look, would in two thousand eight. I, I totally agree with that part of your analysis, which points to the precedent set by Obama in his drone wars that you know can be traced directly from that to 
the action taken by President Trump. But there are distinctions that one can make. And you, know, you just invoked, you know, the phrase, I think, apocalyptic uh, conflagration in the uh, in the Mideast as a result of Trump's threat to bomb Iranian cultural sites, which would unquestionably be a war crime. And which is why so many on the left and so many Democrats put as the top priority in 2020, getting rid of Donald Trump, if not through impeachment, through the ballot box. And they look at your candidate, Bernie Sanders, and say and conclude, no, he's not the guy that can do it. And if you Why? look at the polls, well, you look at the polls. That's the one yardstick we have. Um, Mason Dixon poll just uh, last week had Biden ahead of Trump in Florida and Virginia, two key states, and Sanders four or five points behind Trump. So if the goal here is first and foremost to get rid of the guy you just suggested is a war criminal, shouldn't the first priority be not electing Bernie Sanders, but electing a Democrat or nominating a Democrat who can beat Trump? Well, first of all, I, I reject your premise right there. Okay. Uh, when you but you don't cite, know. Well, you cite one we cite polls. One, you, sure. Right. You, well, you cited a poll. Right. One Mason-Dixon poll, mm -hmm. uh, which, as I understand it, is an outlier from the past year of hypothetical matchups, mm -hmm. you know, Biden versus Trump, Sanders versus Trump, so on. Consistently, I will concede that Biden generally does the best here yeah. in these matchups, which generally is like maybe like four or five points in the popular vote ahead. Mm -hmm. You know, we can we can haggle over how much that is. Mm -hmm. But consistently, Bernie does second best in all of these matchups. Bernie, a guy who is a democratic socialist. You want to talk about someone who would do badly if we're only looking at hypothetical general election polls. It's Pete Buttigieg. It's Elizabeth Warren. It's Amy Klobuchar. It's the rest. Yeah, Biden and Bernie are head and shoulders above any other Democrats in head-to-heads against Trump. A lot of that is name recognition, which should tell you that head-to-head -head matchups a year ahead of the poll of the election might not be that uh, meaningful. Right. And if they're close, and they're close, I'm sorry. I mean, this is literally the first time I've heard of this. You're talking about two states, uh, which, by two, the way, wouldn't have to win. key states. Well, he could win Florida, without Florida. If he wins yeah, Ohio yeah. in the Midwest, where yeah. Bernie would poll stronger than, than pretty much anybody else, that w you don't need to win Florida. But anyway, regardless of any of that, they are close enough that you cannot say, I'm going to take the demonstrably in public sundowning man i'm sorry we're not supposed to say this it's not polite you're not to supposed point to out say what that biden is losing it <laughs> that he is not his the the screen door is open yeah. okay we know this you can't say it poor julian castro said it and they all everyone was horrified to point out that he is out to lunch right so you're going to pick a guy who is Forget the horrible policies. Forget the fact that he has his fingerprints on every awful neoliberal reform, the entire monstrous turn of the Democrats that has led directly to Trump being president, and he is, he is a handmaiden of all of it. Forget all of that. He is just not up to the job, and we're supposed to pick him because he pulls better than Bernie a year out of the election in a couple of states or by a couple of points. That, to me, is madness and, frankly, conceals the fact that most people who say that aren't actually interested in electability. They just don't want a left winger. I want to stay on the presidential election, but I want to actually go back to something you said before, Matt, which was pretty provocative. And I don't know, maybe Mark can move it up in the interview or something. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm glad you said something provocative because we we have you on the show because we want to. Well, I, got, you guys. I want to say though, though, I'm not I'm not a Bernie Bernie surrogate or anything, so I don't want any of this crap of like <laughs> Bernie wants them to have a nuke. I understand what's possible, no, hey, what's realistic. You, well, I was going to say no, you didn't answer my question before no, because about I understand Bernie that there are political realities. You just asked yeah. me about my personal beliefs. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah this is cool. But the, I'm not going to be the NSC if Bernie becomes president. <laughs> though I do yeah, want to know. Though I do want to know. Yeah. You 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 embedded yeah. this in in one of your earlier questions. Yeah. What is distinct about Bernie's position right now? Bernie's immediate reaction to the assassination. Yeah. Well, you know, he used it as a, a as a way to draw distinctions between him and Biden, pointing out Biden's prior support for the Iraq war, which he voted for, uh, even though he 
was conflicted about it. And he suggests, he draws the distinction between somebody like Biden and the mainstream Democrats who have been in favor of U.S. interventions in the Mideast over the years and himself, who would tend not to be. Although I got to say, we had Jeff Weaver on the show last week, and I asked him, would Bernie Sanders, given intelligence that Soleimani might have been plotting an attack against American interests, would Bernie Sanders hesitate to use military force to take them out? Hold on a second. And Weaver said, no, Bernie Sanders would not hesitate to use uh, if there was a threat to American interests in the region, he would use military force. So that seems to be a distinction from where you guys are at. Well, yeah, of course, because, because so why so why are you just so enthusiastic about a guy who on a key foreign policy issue doesn't even support your uh, position? Well, no, no, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, I did not listen to your interview with Jeff Weaver. But, okay, uh, as I understand it, the Pasagan, you should. You have an opportunity to. It's out there. But the response, and I, I guess the the official Bernie Sanders campaign stance is, I would commit an extrajudicial assassination. No, he if, actually, just to be fair, Mike, he okay. he, he did not say. There's a lot of slippery not, words there. He, he did not explicitly about. say, in, you know, if it was Soleimani. That's what he true. said was, what he, what he said was, if force. American yes. interests were threatened, lives, interests were threatened, he would use. Fair he enough. would use force. So but that's, yes. the, but, the, so that's the 24 okay. question. That's yeah. the fucking well, question yeah, there's they've a, been there's asking. A, there's a truck full of explosives that's going to come to an American military base where you're going to stop it. Yeah, well, Senator, would you say no to that? Uh, right. I think we yeah. should surrender to the bomb. Yeah, <laughs> and that's the that's the illusion that the, the press does is the yeah. difference between, yeah, a direct intervention on like the something that could kill a specific number of American troops or whatever, which, by the way, hopefully would be less of an issue because ideally, and we Bernie has there. talked about this, they wouldn't be there in the first right, place. Right. But but but, yeah. all, but that is on the same level and is basically the same thing rhetorically as assassinating the head of the IRGC right. uh, on the, the soil at the airport of a freaking friendly uh, country. Well, he was well, he's, got a milita- he's got a diplomatic freaking passport. Okay, but I want to, I just want to go, I want. You to clarify your point on Iranian nukes, and I know this is just your opinion. <laughs> this is my take. Okay, yeah, your on. take. But no, it's important. So your p- position is you are you would favor your support Iran pursuing and obtaining a nuclear weapon, and you're not concerned. Um, this is a question. You're not concerned. Well, first of all, the Iranians you think would be doing this purely for defensive purposes, a and b. You're not concerned that they would use this, you know, a, a nuclear weapon to threaten its neighbors, to threaten Israel, to maximize its influence in the region. What you I think would, it's entirely defensive. What I would prefer, ideally, is for Iran to not end a nuke as part of a process where there is universal denuclearization. But I, I just a, I don't. But right, but. How are how are we especially as America's influence all over the world is is challenged and declining? How are we supposed to maintain this idea that there's a club of nuclear countries that are responsible enough to get nukes and nobody else gets them? And it, and if you're anywhere in like the, the 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 liminal space of trying to be a regional power, but you're not on our slate of t- of countries that are uh, approved that we're going to militarily interdict you to the level of threatening to commit cultural genocide against you uh, unless you get a nuke. I'm just saying is that th- all of this means that the only rational action for these countries is to pursue nuclear weapons. I'm not saying I'm going to help them. I'm not going to smuggle. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not Carl Fuchs. I'm not going to smuggle in the, the uranium. But it is in their interests to do it because they did the nuclear deal. They did it. And what happened immediately afterwards? We got a new guy in, tore it up, and immediately started. Did you guys support the nuclear deal? Yes, that yes. was the, yeah. that was the one thing of the Obama administration that I think was an unambiguously good thing, and and I was happy he did it. And it's like it's on the sheet for me. Obama, it's a lot of bad and a yeah. few of the good things. But the one on the top for me is the nuclear deal. Yeah. So absolutely. No. What are a couple of other? I'm saying now in this new era. I mean, yeah. how are you? How are you supposed to, with a straight face, say America should be overseeing anybody's nuclear anything? We have no credibility. Yeah. It's all gone, and I know we don't want to believe that, 
But how are you supposed to spend two and a half years talking about how terrible Trump is and how he's destroying our reputation around the world, doing X, Y, and Z, and then say we still have the standing? Because how can we say we're not going to elect another senile game show host any fucking time? <laughs> and building on that, I, I apologize. I should have uh, framed this a different way. What I meant was you seem to imply that Bernie's not what I want in terms of Middle Eastern policy. When his response among all of the, you know, the top level Democratic presidential candidates, his response to the assassination was uniquely what I want. It was to say in no uncertain terms that this was this was bad. This was a crime. I don't know uh, you know, exactly what word to use. I will get us out of the Middle East. Yes. Yeah. We are getting out of the Middle East. And anybody, Nobody else said that. Maybe Marianne Williamson and they, said that. Actually, she, Trump she has, has said one. that, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, yeah. But, isn't no, that now he's Trump's sending more troops in. They so. all, okay, but yeah, but Trump is not a guy who has had compiled a voting record of, over the past 30 years in the U.S. Congress against these foreign interventions. And as well, you know, when we're talking about <laughs> whether any you know, any foreign government can trust us to maintain our commitments, you know, you could say, well, you know, okay, well, Trump was an aberration, you know, we'll go back, we'll have a normal president now who keeps our treaty obligations. And then the Iranians have nothing to worry about when literally every single U.S. senator, except for two, voted to increase sanctions on Iran two years ago. And those two were while Rand were, Paul while and they were, Bernie Sanders. While they were in compliance with every element of the... Of the treaty. I got another one for you. What about providing military aid to Ukraine to fight Russian aggression? No. Good Lord, no. no. You Terrible guys, idea. you agree, Virgil? I got to, you know, I got to be honest with you. I do not care that much about foreign policy, except when it is just <laughs> it, like in your face, you know, you're, you're staring at the unblinking eye of, of horror and, and American aggression and war crimes and yeah. seeing all the, the, the lunacy that and racism that it unleashes. So when it comes to arming crime, probably not. I don't know. Or what really do you guys disagree? Do you guys disagree on? What do you disagree? Oh, on? Oh yeah. Okay. So the, the Star Wars prequels <laughs> we had... Hours of discussions. We can go to the tape on these. It's on our show, on a show called Star Wars Minutes. Uh, are the most controversial episodes of Star Wars Minute to date. Yeah, he insists that the prequels are, are somehow All good. All right, well, since we're on not. pop culture, I hear that you guys are not big fans of the West Wing and that the West Wing has kind of poisoned the generation of Democratic operatives that, you know, the belief that you can make you know, a high-minded speech and, and transform American politics. My now 15-year-old daughter just discovered West Wing and she's been binge-watching it. So I guess I might be poisoning her mind. So what's the problem with West Wing? I think the essential problem with West Wing is that it says that what matters in politics is intentions, that the way that political change happens is through persuasion. People, persuasion, but not of the people, importantly of other people in the room with you, mm. of the other party. People, every, the assumption that's is- That's because it's a TV show that with everybody, characters. Well, right, I know, I'm just <laughs> saying is that, that that's not what, what gets communicated, yeah, is right. that you get Republicans and Democrats in a room and they all want what's best for the country, <laughs> and you talk it out. And I think that the Obama administration, by their own admission, operated under those principles. They all have said as much. And then they ran into the modern Republican Party in the form of Mitch McConnell, and they were absolutely poleaxed by it because they kept waiting for him to act like someone from the West Wing, someone who had some higher uh, thing that he cared about, mm. and it never happened. Mm. And then they had no response to it. That's my main issue. So, look, I mean, the, the, the principle Obama operated under is that we're a diverse country uh, with diverse interests, and they are reflected uh, in the Congress, in our political system, with people with vastly different perspectives on the world than you guys have. And so then the question is, do you try to work with people like that to compromise, or is it all my way or the highway? What are the and what the, and what gets something now you're really accomplished here? Okay. What are the diverse interests? What are the diverse interests? Yeah, you said we're a country of diverse interests. Well, obviously, some people are very Christian and other people are very secular. Yeah. So okay, those are diverse interests. But those are not really 
political interests. Like generally, no. we have some ninety percent support for religious pluralism. No one, no one, very few people want to make a theocracy. When you say diverse interests like yeah. that, yeah. it sounds like you know I want to eat spaghetti for dinner. I want to eat you know uh, what's mm-hmm. another food? <laughs> that's yeah. I was going to say lasagna, but that's too close yeah. to spaghetti. Those are that's not very diverse yeah. interests. That sounds like we're closer. Yeah. That's intra-party. Okay, yeah. Pokemon. So when you say diverse interests, that's what you make it sound like. Yeah. When I think of diverse interests, I think uh, I I own this copper uh, fucking copper wire factory. I want to pollute this river. I want to dump fucking right. toxic waste in the poor people neighborhood. And then uh, another interest might be, hey, I live in the poor people neighborhood. I don't want to die, please. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, there are perspectives that uh, uh, the free market system and capitalism is uh, is a better way of managing and of having an economy than state-run bureaucrats telling you and I what we should do or what healthcare we should have or whatever. I mean, that is, you know, you may not agree, but there are people who legitimately have different philosophical perspectives on the best way for a good society than the ones that you do. And they've got some pretty powerful arguments uh, in their favor by looking for starters at the performance of socialist systems over the many decades and their many failures. How about why? Yeah. Why doesn't Scandinavia ever count when these things are put out? How come? How come the country <laughs> that actually has money to begin with, yeah. and socializes, as opposed to countries that are on the, in the imperial well, Scandinavians uh, have turned away from the democratic socialism that was its hallmark in the fifties and sixties. Well, see, oh, hold on a minute, though. Yeah. They always see that's it. Yeah. That's always what happens. It's like what happens? Oh, they're 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 not socialist anymore. Really, they're way more socialist than us. And if we start, if we said, and if you said, let's do what they're doing now, which is less socialist than it used to be, but it's still way more socialist than it is now. Even though that's an example of them not being socialist anymore, it's still too socialist for us, though. Mm-hmm. The thing that used that that's not as socialist and therefore proof of capitalism's yeah. victory or whatever, it's still too socialist for us. It always, it always will be because this has nothing to do with ideology. It has as to do with Matt money. Brunig is fond of pointing out, Norway's sovereign wealth fund controls a much bigger chunk of. Its economy than Venezuela does. Yes, it's much more state-run. Norway has more a larger percentage of its economy under state control than Venezuela does. That's Mm -hmm. not, and they're both. They both uh, uh, have oil wealth at the basis of it, and that's that's just a fact. All right, you guys are, are are Bernie guys. You're all in for Bernie. Let's look at the rest of the Democratic field and yeah, give us with, your sense wanna, of you know, yeah. who do well, you want to start, start with. with uh, uh, Buttigieg, because yeah. someone told me that you guys don't really like Mayor <laughs> Pete, and that you uh, did one of you say that. He might be a CIA asset. We've all said that, and his record <laughs> yeah. is. Pr- I mean, what's he doing well, what, over what do you there? Base, yeah, what, what do you base? He that was on, on what va- vacation Where? in Somalia? Yeah, he took a Where nice vacation to Somalia. Had some conversations with a guy. You serious <laughs> about this. with a guy? Who, wait a minute. He took a vacation <laughs> to Somaliland. Yeah, with a guy, and then which is not Somalia, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yes, yeah, it's yeah, a it's a breakaway place. area. Yeah. Okay, uh, and then he met with local leaders like we all like to do on vacation in war zones. Yeah, and he did it with a guy who he somehow co-wrote as a kid. A New York Times op-ed with a guy whose entire resume is USAID, uh, and he's literally in charge of the like <laughs> it's the agency for change. international development. Yeah, you know, it does have has, a yeah. stated. It also has a of, documented uh, connection to the Central right. Intelligence Agency. So yeah, we want to, I think we want a prison there or something. There's uh, like uh, there there yeah. is some. But wait a second, you so guys. Like, wait, I just want to. You guys are serious. That you think, or is there some? I'm just saying it could, I don't know. I, just, How yeah, I, I don't know. know. Right. Well, you no, said it. Well, you just throw this out there. Yeah, I mean, you have right. no yeah, evidence. It looks it right. Sounds right. The thing is, is that it all, it all, it like, even if he wasn't, his record and what he wants he might as well his, be. It might as well be. <laughs> so it's like I don't understand what <laughs> difference it actually makes. But kind like, sounds like the intellectual rigor of Roger Stone here. I mean, you know, sounds right. I will say, I will say this: the one argument again. Mayor Pete being a CIA agent is, you know, if if that fucker could put CIA on his resume, <laughs> top secret CIA guy, yeah. like yeah. you would not hear the end of it. That's true. It's yeah. not like you're a, he's ashamed. Of OK, that. Yeah. so look, if Buttigieg were to get the nomination and be the nominee against Donald Trump, would you support him? What does support mean? What do you would mean you vote that? for him? I live in New York. What difference does it make? Well, well, you cast a vote. I mean, I you probably know, wouldn't. You but, probably would not, yeah. Virgil. 
I don't know. Would you I, want him to beat Trump? What difference does that make? This, 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 well, this is all, you see no this difference. Is, this is the shit that it right. drives me insane. I am just a guy. We're all just guys. <laughs> what we want about anything doesn't you're, matter. You're guys with an audience. So That's why we have you on. But this is all men as People chaff listen to, to you. the essential argument. The essential <laughs> argument is we are at a fucking crossroads. We are at a crucial moment. We either change the way things are done or we go down this road that is leading okay. us to all an Okay, all right. So Mayor Pete. And whether or not Mayor Pete gets in or out, who gives a shit at neither, that point? Neither one of you would commit to even voting for him against Donald Trump. What about Klobuchar? I don't care. Yeah, uh, I, I live in New York, as I said. Okay, not, I, I, yeah. For me, I mean, I, it, it really depends what the the general election campaign how that shakes out. All right, so this is a maybe vote for Klobuchar. Yeah, if if, she's if, if, well, but here's what's absurd yeah. about the question: We know that what what people like Mayor Pete and Klobuchar are saying now, as kind of frankly shitty as what they're saying now is, uh, what they're going to be saying in eight months is going to be different all over again. More, all right, more broadly. So if if Amy Klobuchar, mm-hmm. uh, if she you know gets the nomination and then pivots at the convention and says, uh, "I'm a Nazi. I I am a national socialist in the Hitler kind." Mm-hmm. And I'm more of a Nazi than Trump, sir. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and and you know I want to. I uh, she says that she wants to to uh, uh, make America a white ethno state and murder all the minorities. I would not support her. Right. I would want her to lose. Rather than asking about you guys, let me ask you where you think your audience would be if. You obviously have this very intense Bernie bro audience. Think, you know if, if if Bernie doesn't get the nomination, and it's not Warren, who I assume would be your second pick, and it's one of the others, Biden, Buttigieg, uh, Klobuchar, where do you think your audience I'll tell you this, be? and I hope everyone listening who is on the fence, maybe, they're, maybe they don't like Bernie, maybe they're, they don't think he can win or whatever. I'll tell you right this. Our audience will, as a block, refuse to vote for whoever gets the nomination, which means... Wait, wait, if it's not Bernie. Yes, which means that for everybody who, as you said, is concerned first and foremost with defeating Trump, they are morally obligated to vote for Bernie in the, in the primaries. Yep. Because he is the only one who has a significant chunk of people who will not vote for the nominee, which means... You have to pick him because if he doesn't get the nomination, <laughs> you're yeah. SOL. So if you're really concerned, as you said yeah, earlier, yeah, yeah, with yeah. electability, right. you have to pick Bernie. Okay. Okay. I got one more question about you guys, which is it's like a generational question because you guys are like 20, 30 years younger than we are. And you probably come across to some of our audience as passionate <laughs> uh, or cool. angry. Cool guys. Right. Yeah, cool and, dudes. All right, yeah. A little angry, and I want to hear. Would you would you agree that you're you're angry about the situation in this country right now? Is that a fair? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I so, think I'm, I think I'm not, and then I start talking about it, yeah. and I get really angry. <laughs> so <laughs> that's so that's what I wanted to probe a little bit, and you know, I think there are a lot of good reasons for people in your generational cohort to be angry, but I want to hear from you guys. Why are you angry? Why do you think that you guys have been fucked? But I guess by us, or mostly by Isakov. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so just talk about that a little bit. Uh, how Isakov fucked up? No, 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 no. But you know, uh, you know, I, I never know heard of I mean, you guys like, until two weeks yeah. ago. So I don't think but I could have fucked you. Okay, right, boomer. Right, right. Okay. I don't. I don't take seriously this idea of generational politics. Yeah. I mean, again, I think boomers. I think we're pretty clear, I and mean, you've got a copy of our. New York Times best-selling yeah. book, The Chapo Guide to Revolution, a manifesto against logic, facts, and reason. And we make <laughs> pretty clear in our book, I think, like to think, that we, what we're recommending people use as a heuristic for explaining the economy and political situation and, frankly, the material forces that shape their lives uh, you shouldn't look to culture. Don't look to 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 this. You know, uh, boomers versus millennials. You know, uh, generational divide. Look to your material class interests to dictate the you know political circumstances we find ourselves in. Who in America, you know, gets to live where, gets to do what for a living, or even has to work. Who, you know, as a group collectively whose interests are represented by Congress, by the presidency, by the judiciary, by the, you know, D.C. land, and which views get promulgated in the media. 
Well, that would be us. Right. Yes. We, we no, decide that's how that. Right. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Perfect answer. Well, on that note, I kind of <laughs> like that as yeah. a tagline for this episode. I think that's uh, the, that's the, yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah. the title of the episode. Anyway, thank you guys for coming in. Thanks thank for you. having us. Thanks to Politico co-founder John Harris and the hosts of Chapo Trap House, Virgil, Texas, and Matt Crispin for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.